Hey, Bob, this is the band. All right. Uh, what kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. Well, I'm sure glad to have you boys here. I'm Bob, and this here is my place. Well, it's a beautiful place, Bob. <laughs> I guess you boys want to get your steel guitars and everything set up on the stage, don't you? Claire, get up there and turn those stage lights on and get these boys going up there. Hello, welcome to a six-string hayride podcast, a journey through the world of classic country music with your hosts, Chris Wainscott and Jim O'Malley. We will be covering all of the great topics in country music, from mama to prison, to dancing, to drinking, to guitar picking, to all the crazy deal with the devil, honky-talking stuff you do on Saturday night, and how you try to get it past your Lord on Sunday morning. So climb aboard the cart and let's go. Hello, fellow music lovers. This time on Six String Hayride, we are leaving the six strings behind. We are taking you into the world of ten strings. One neck tuned to the E9 tuning. One neck tuned to the C6 tuning. Several knee levers. Several foot pedals. Four supporting legs to hold the necks of the guitar up. We are, as you've guessed, taking you into the world of the pedal steel guitar. Our story begins in Hawaii in the 1800s. We have the Spanish and the Portuguese that are in Hawaii doing ranching and other agricultural work, and they have the traditional Spanish guitar. You hold it against your body. You do not lay it flat across your lap. These are traditional uh, Spanish guitar arrangements, traditional Spanish and Portuguese songs. It's a tradition that is brought to Hawaii and really spreads across the island fairly quickly in the mid to late 1800s. The local Hawaiian musicians do not play the guitar up against their body with their right arm over it as the strumming arm for reasons that are kind of lost to history, folklore, legend, whatever. The Hawaiian musicians set the guitar on their lap and with a piece of steel, a steel rod, not a slide that you would insert your finger into like the blues players, but a steel rod would go up and down the neck to chord notes that way and then use their right hand to strum or to, to pluck in the traditional sense.
Hawaiian musicians also did not accept the regular traditional guitar tuning that came from the Spanish and the Portuguese. For some reason, they loosened the strings and created a type of music that is still very known, very popular, very practiced throughout Hawaii to this day. And that is what is referred to as slack key guitar. tuning you loosen the strings down typically to an open G chord if you're a fan of Grant Parsons or Keith Richards guitar playing you are familiar with this tuning and this becomes the foundation of traditional Hawaiian music in the late 1800s and the early 1900s States and Nexus Hawaii in 1900, it becomes, you know, a U.S. territory. And then the influence of Hawaiian culture, especially Hawaiian music, really explodes through California and then through the whole United States. in the 1920s, really up until the Depression starts, Hawaiian music, Hawaiian culture is a, a tremendous fad at first. It really settles in and becomes an integral part of American culture at this time. In the late 1920s, we have a guitar player and a bit of a do-it-yourself inventor, engineer type guy named George Beecham, who had seen people try to add like an old Victrola-style horn to a lap guitar to try to make it louder so you could actually perform and fit in with an ensemble, with a band, other musicians. Beecham winds up approaching a violin repair man that he meets in Los Angeles, John Dopriera.
John Doprira and his brother Rudy take that idea of having a Victrola horn attached to a guitar and they try that, they try a few variations of it and it's not successful. So their next attempt is to make something that resembles a speaker cone and they try to design that with some resonating um, sound properties and they fix that into the middle of the body of the guitar. Think of where the traditional sound hole is on an acoustic guitar and they're trying to shove a resonating speaker cone type device in there. This is the beginning of what becomes the resonator guitar, very famously referred to as the dobro, kind of a, a play on words for the Dopira brothers, John and Rudy. design the resonator dobro guitar does take off in the 1930s they're successful with the design they do create the dobro corporation however they don't really make enough money to defend their patents and when other people try to infringe on their ideas and their designs and their technology and take the the science the engineering of lap and resonator and dobro guitar further in business doprira and beecham are not really in a position to afford to do much about it i mean they're barely keeping their own doors open they're in no position to fight in court to defend their patents eventually beecham teams up with a nearby engineer a fellow named adolf rickenbacker and Rickenbacker is, of course, the beginning of the family and the business that becomes Rickenbacker Guitars. In 1937, Beecham and Rickenbacker receive a patent for what they kind of call the frying pan guitar. It really looks like one of those old cast iron camping cowboy movie type frying pans. It has a short neck, but this is their first attempt to create an electrified lap guitar. 
that a player can use to perform with other musicians in a live setting. In the very early days, lap guitar was not loud enough for live performance with other musicians. You were either playing it alone or you were playing it in a recording setting where the volume and the sound could be artificially boosted a little bit. But in those early days in the 1920s, you could not get the instrument loud enough that playing in a group would ever work. It's really Beecham and Rickenbacker that take that step forward. And they wind up referring, they wind up calling it the electro string. The frying pan is sort of the slang or casual nickname that came up for it. It's a lot more common and well known, but when they applied for the patent, the electro string was the actual proper legal name of the instrument they developed. is trying to get around the issue of players wanting different voicings, different tunings to get more versatility out of the strings and the short neck of a frying pan type electrified lap steel guitar. So it, it winds up being almost sort of a spinal tap-like thing because what happens is designers start to build more neck. And yeah, there are double neck guitars out there and that's fantastic and versatile. And double console pedal steels are fairly common these days. But in the 30s and 40s, when they were first trying to figure this out and develop which way would be the right way to go, you wound up with three, four, five, you know, it wound up looking like the dining room table and you just had pedal steel neck, pedal steel neck, pedal steel neck. That actually sounds like a lot of fun, but one musician could not navigate all of that. You know, one guitar player is not going to be able to reach across what is essentially a dining room table. One of the problems that comes up when you're building multiple necks and multiple necks aside from the fact that nobody's arms are that long, is the expense in building it. And 
just the absolute fuss in trying to get it to bar a beer hall, a honky tonk anywhere where musicians, you know, in the 1940s are, are going to use something like this. So in 1939, something called the Electra Dare comes along and it has a pedal that controls a little electrical apparatus that changes the sound of the strings. It's really ambitious, but it is not successful. In 1940, the Gibson Guitar Company comes along with the electric harp, and this has a more developed pedal system. It's oriented where the pedals are kind of off to the left side for the left foot to use. There were 43 of them that were sold in its initial run, and then the U.S. starts to enter World War II. So the Electra Harp never really takes off. The 43 from that original run, for the most part, are what was sold, and it just sort of is an idea that comes and goes. However, Gibson gets a little bit of a comeback with this after the war. In 1949, they reintroduced the Electra Harp and a fellow named Bud Isaacs. best pedal guitar system that comes up at this point is it's going to be post-war it's 1948 and it's by a name that comes up every once in a while on the hayride here mr paul bigsby he's the fellow that developed the whammy arm for the chet atkins Gretsch guitars of the 1950s and 60s so 1948 paul bigsby comes up with the idea of putting a rack between the two front legs of the steel guitar console. It gives a little more room to the pedals for the foot usage, but it also puts in the idea of pedals or levers that you can move with your knees. Bigsby builds these guitars through the late 40s and into the 1950s and they're used by Speedy West and Bud Isaacs. Bigsby's kind of a one-man operation, and he's already in his mid-50s when he starts doing this. So eventually, you know, he farms out the work, he sells out the business that he's getting, and again, you get Gibson, and other companies coming back into pedal steel manufacturing and still really trying to push the design boundaries. The 1950s are an incredible decade for growth in not just the playing of the instrument, but developing and fine-tuning the design elements, of tuning the accessibility of the council and the strings on the top, the knee levers, the foot pedals. The 1950s is really a huge period of growth for pedal steel.
So folks, mind the extra strings, the knee levers, and the foot pedals. Don't trip over anything. Chris, why don't you start telling us about some of your favorite pedal steel players and why they matter? Well, let's start with Buddy Emmons. So he's born on January 27th, 1937 in Mishawaka, Indiana. Eventually, he becomes nicknamed the Big E, but here's how he gets there. His father actually buys him a lap steel when he's 11 and arranged lessons at the Hawaiian Conservatory of Music in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, Buddy winds up attending there for about a year. He then picks up influences uh, amongst other steel players. Uh, Jerry Bird, who was a lap steel player, uh, he actually played on I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, and he's also known as the guy who teaches Jerry Garcia how to play uh, Herb Remington. Uh, who played with Bob Wills from 1946 to 1949, was another lap steel player who was a big influence on Emmons. Uh, Remington actually played in Bubbles in My Beer. Emmons, uh, when he gets a start, he's playing with little Jimmy Dickens starting at age 18. Uh, he plays on the side Raising the Dickens, which has become a pedal steel standard. Uh, when Dickens goes solo in 1956, Emmons does his first session work. One of his earliest session gigs is to play on Farron uh, Young's hit Sweet Dreams. Uh, Emmons does invent the split pedal setup, which was first used on Ernest Tubbs' Half a Mind to Leave You. Uh, he also played lead guitar for a time with the Texas Troubadours. Uh, now, in 1962, he leaves Tubb to join Ray Price's band, the Cherokee Cowboys. It's around this time that he invents more for the pedal steel by adding two chromatic uh, strings, uh, F-sharp and D-sharp, which have since become the standard for the 10-string pedal steel. Uh, he plays on Price's recording of Nightlife, where his intro and solo bridges had become uh, considered to be among the best work done in the genre with the instrument. When the evening sun goes down, you will find me hanging round. Oh, the nightlife ain't no good life. In 1963, he actually releases an album of his own, uh, Steel Guitar Jazz, on the Mercury label. Uh, around these same years, he's doing session work with George Jones and Melba Montgomery. And from this point, he actually plays with everyone from Linda Ronstadt to Ray Charles to George Strait to Buck Owens. Uh, the man is highly in demand due to his large influence over the genre of country music and specifically country music that includes pedal steel. 
You know, Chris, I think Buddy Emmons is one of those guys, and I don't think I'm really going out on a limb here, but I'm going to say that Buddy Emmons is very much uh, with pedal steel guitar. He's really the Les Paul figure in that world, uh, as much as Les is, you know, with standard sitting it up against your body, traditional guitar. Uh, Les Paul is really known for not just the quality of his guitar playing, but for the technical innovations that he comes up with along the way. The solid body, electric, uh, the different recording techniques he pioneers, things like echo and double tracking. And early in his career, he's a guy that plays to singers, to some of the best singers of his time, to being Crosby, the Andrew Sisters, and of course, all of the incredible collaborations with Mary Ford. The other thing that I think makes him really similar to Buddy Emmons is there's an instrument that winds up having the man's name on it. If you are that great of a player, if you are associated with some of the more innovative and pioneering technological aspects of your instrument, and then you have one of the damn things with your name plastered on it, I think that those two men are in a unique category in that way that, you know, there's Chet Atkins, and then you're really hard pressed to think of who would be another person like that, where your contribution as a player and kind of an engineer, an inventor, is to the point where you can look at a pedal steel guitar and there's Buddy Emmons' name on the side of it. at a hard-bodied solid electric guitar and there's Les Paul or there's Chet Atkins name on it uh, it's rare rare air for those guys and I really think that the buddy is definitely in that category Next up is a fellow named Pete Drake, and it, Pete Drake kind of comes into the story in a little bit of a sideways fashion. Mm -hmm. 
He is a well-established and well-known country musician, pedal steel player here, you know, in the States. And right after the Beatles break up and George Harrison is putting together an A-list team of musicians to work on the triple All Things Must Pass album, and he's got Ringo on drums. He's got Eric Clapton playing guitar. He's got Klaus Foreman playing bass. And he John Lennon coming in and helping out on a few things here and there. And he reaches out to Pete Drake over here in America. And Drake gets a message, you know, some guy named George Harrison is looking for you. I want you to come to England, help work on an album, do some sessions. And Drake is kind of mystified. I mean, not much of a clue as to who's going to ask him to come over and help out with the record. So it gets explained to him, it's George Harrison, it's the guy from the Beatles, blah, blah, blah. And Pete Drake goes over to England. He participates in these really lengthy and it, now they've become legendary sessions that produce the All Things Must Pass record. It's a rare thing to do a triple record when pretty much the whole thing is solid front to back. So Pete Drake, not much of an idea who George Harrison was. George Harrison, we've already talked about as being a big Chet Atkins fan, a big Carl Perkins and Buck Owens fan. He knows who Pete Drake is. And to fill us in on the rest of the story, Chris knows who Pete Drake is. So Pete is born on October 8th, 1932 in Augusta, Georgia. In 1950, he drives to the Grand Ole Opry and he sees Jerry Bird. And this prompts him to buy a steel guitar. Later in the 50s, he's in Atlanta and he organizes the band Sons of the South, which has folks like uh, Jerry Reed, uh, Doug Kershaw, Roger Miller. Uh, they're all in the band at various times. So obviously some very serious players. Uh, at the end of the 50s in 1959, Pete moves to Nashville, where he becomes part of uh, the A-Team, which we've spoken about numerous times uh, throughout the history of the podcast. Uh, but in addition to just doing studio work with the A-Team, he also did road work for Don Gibson and Marty Robbins uh, during this time. Uh, he winds up putting a song titled Forever, which was written by Buddy Killen, into the Billboard Hot 100 charts at number 25, and eventually it sells a million copies. His name is Pete Drake. He got the brilliant idea one time to make his steel guitar talk, and he actually does it right now with a beautiful song, Forever. Pete Drake!
talking steel on it. So for those of you who think that Peter Frampton invented the talk box, right over there is where you go with that bullshit. He plays on albums Bob Dylan records in Nashville, uh, including John Wesley Harding and Nashville Skyline. Uh, this includes songs like I'll Be Your Baby Tonight. I'll be your baby tonight. Shut the lane. Should the shade you don't have to be afraid. Uh, some other songs that Pete played on throughout his illustrious career. Only Daddy That'll Walk the Line by Waylon Jennings. Lay Lady Lay by Bob Dylan. Lay Lady Lay Lay across my big breast bed Lay Lady Lay Lay across my big Love Me, Love Me by Tammy Wynette. I've searched so long for love and understanding. Someone to share my dreams as I grow old. And Good Old Mountain Dew by Mother Maybelle Carter. Harrison. It, this is also kind of a period where maybe from the mid 60s through the early 70s, you have a time where there's a lot of real obvious folk 
and country and kind of Americana influence in rock and roll music. And if you're part of our audience that comes from the rock and roll side of things, um, keep coming in. You're not going to believe how amazing the world of country and rockabilly really gets once you're fully immersed. But what happens, and this kind of ties a few things together from the world of pedal steel, that name Rickenbacker comes up again in the mid-60s because of the electric 12-string guitar. And that's a big part of the folk and the country influence that spills over into the rock and roll world. And then, again, Pete Drake playing with Bob Dylan, playing with George Harrison. The thing that kind of rubs off into the rock and roll world here that becomes really almost universally known is your friend and mine, Jerry Garcia, who will pretty much try to play anything he can get his hands on, stumbles across pedal steel. We've talked about Weir and Garcia and the Grateful Dead overall as being big Johnny Cash fans, certainly big Bill Monroe fans, Merle Haggard. I mean, this is music they grew up with and that they continued to play in their professional career. And Garcia, in part, through a collaboration with musicians in a group called New Riders of the Purple Sage, starts plonking around and messing around with pedal steel. He gets good enough to the point that when even a casual music fan kind of recalls the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young classic, Teach Your Children, and that iconic guitar part, that is Jerry Garcia. It really defines that song. And, and again, even to casual you know, fans who mostly just listen to music on the radio, that's something that your ears remember really, really well. And that's, you know, Buddy Emmons and Keith Drake and Ralph Mooney and Speedy West. That's the, the heritage. That's the legacy that those guys created that really just spills over into folk and Americana and rock and roll. And that Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young track with Garcia on pedal steel, that's really the iconic example of how all those influences kind of just very naturally cross over into the hippie folk world of the late 60s and early 70s. During all of these different periods of technical innovations and, and kind of pioneering the structure and the abilities of the pedal steel guitar, one of the weird sort of offshoots that starts around 1939 is a thing called the singing guitar that then winds up being the Sonovox and then the talk box. In 1939, a guy named Alvino Ray, he's a radio engineer, but he uses vocal throat microphones to try to combine his voice with a lap steel guitar sound. And 
obviously it doesn't take off as it is and become a thing, but it's really that first step in somebody trying to combine a singing voice with the sound of a guitar and to use microphones to sort of blend those two elements to become one unique sound. And it's singing or talking guitar, the early ways that people described it. And again, the fellow's name is Alvino Ray. I am the spirit of the St. Louis blues. I am the blues. All the day long, I am blue. All the day long, I am so blue. This is 1939, but it's an idea that's cool enough that it sticks around. He doesn't have it absolutely right from the beginning. But it's something that the guitar world sort of notices and people in their different ways go about pursuing it. The Sonovox is similar to the Alvino Ray idea. You're taking a guitar signal, you're taking a vocal human voice and a, a vocal microphone, and you're trying to combine and modulate the signal to create something new. The Sonovox worked enough that it was used in radio station IDs and jingles through the 1930s. And Lucille Ball, one of the great pioneers in comedy and in TV and in radio, she made one of her early film appearances in the 1930s in a newsreel demonstrating how the Sonovox worked. Using the human larynx as a sounding board for mechanical sound is the latest wonder of science. The human voice isn't used. Only the mechanical sounds are reflected from the larynx as the silent lips form the words. Listen to Lucille Ball. I've just returned from a trip across country by rail, and at every crossing, this is the way the train whistle sounded to me. sound is transmitted from the record to the amplifiers at the throat and it's formed into speech by simply mouthing the words. So let's try again. The idea of the Sonovox or the talking singing guitar kind of crosses over into country music with a fellow named Pete Drake. And Pete Drake uses what is now becoming known as a talk box in 1964 on his album called Forever. talking guitar specifically for Pete Drake talking steel guitar 
that term really takes off and starts to become common usage. Over the course of the mid-60s, Pete Drake released quite a lot of music referred to generally as Pete Drake and his talking guitar. Drake's contraption was pretty much an eight-inch paper cone speaker with a driver attached to a funnel and had a clear tube that brought the tube up to the performer's mouth. And at this point in the mid-1960s, it's only loud enough to really be useful in a recording studio. Nobody has figured out a way yet to make it loud enough to function in a performance environment. In 1969, a company called Custom Electronics refines this basic clocking guitar design into a device that they call the bag. It has a 30-watt driver in it. It's released as a mass market guitar effect accessory in 1969. Stevie Wonder is one of the first musicians to use the bag, the talk box, in a performance environment when he is on the David Frost show in 1972. He does a version of the Jackson 5's Never Can Say Goodbye. the hayride one of our favorites the great jeff beck is really the poster boy for the talk box in the 1970s you know about peter frampton and he wants to know if we feel like he does and it's an incredibly long live album i think it's like six or seven days long but jeff beck really gets to that first in May 1973, he helped Stevie Wonder create the hit single Superstition and uses the talk box on that. In 1975, on the album Blow by Blow, produced by the great George Martin, Jeff Beck really makes one of the iconic uses of the talk box when he does a cover of the Beatles track, She's a Woman. I think as far as the talk box evolves away from Pete Drake and the country music scene in the mid-60s, it's really mostly a rock and roll thing by the mid-70s. And it's really Jeff Beck that really owns that thing. So up next is Orville J. Rhodes, who music fans know as Red Rhodes, born in December of 1930, Red Rhodes is from Alton, Illinois, born in 1930. Uh, he can make that claim to fame with another great musician, Miles Davis, who is also from Alton, Illinois. Just going to assume there's something in the water. 
accept the mystery and move on. Red Rhodes grows up as a dobro player. When he's a little kid, his mom gets him a dobro resonator guitar, and he becomes quite good on that. But career-wise, in his early adult life, he's an engineer for an oil company, and he does a lot of boxing on the side. He moves to L.A. in 1960, and he becomes pretty well-established as a session guy. He plays with James Taylor. He plays with the Beach Boys, the Birds. He plays on some of the Monkees records, and he does some of the more bizarre guitar effects on the Ventures records of this period. They were one of the really big surf acts in the early 60s. It's while he's working with the Monkees that he really finds a great musical partnership in his relationship with Michael Nesmith. fair to the other three guys to point out that Nesmith overall, when you consider songwriting, musicianship, business sense, singing voice, kind of the total package type thing, I'm going to say he wears all those hats better than any of the other three guys. Again, no disrespect. They were all good at what they were doing. But Nesmith and Rhodes become really good, close friends. Rhodes is already established as a country and folk session little steel player. Nesmith has incredible songwriting ability, even in the early days of the Monkees. This is when he writes different drum for Linda Ronstadt. And he's a Texas boy who comes into Southern California. So their appreciation of things like Hank Williams, Bob Wills, Buck Owens, that really binds these guys and they form a creative partnership that you're not going to get the records in the early seventies that Mike Nesmith is known for and known for pioneering this idea of country rock. You're not going to get any of that unless he has that collaboration with red roads. You well, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, red or not red roads to pedal steel guitar player. I would hope that you are, because Red's like uh, my cosmic partner. Between he and I, we plot on keeping uh, Saturn in orbit, <clears throat> which is a far cry from, uh, I tried so hard, my dear, to find in you are my everything, uh, which we did for a while. But then, uh, then Red and I got kind of spaced out and hanging out with each other, and Eating donuts and stuff, and 
ended up doing a lot of strange things. Now, the pedal steel guitar is really an interesting instrument. It's about as complex as a pinball machine to play because a lot of its catch is catch can. There's also um, uh, an overriding factor, which is uh, uh, that after Red gets through playing everything, he's playing with both hands and both feet and his knees so that there is very little occasion for any external boogie. You get the First National Band records. You get Nevada Fighter, Santa Mountain Treason. You get, and the hits just keep on coming. And, and that is an extraordinary record because it's really just Nesmith and Red Rhodes. There's another little bit of backup guitar and bass here and there. But, and the hits just keep on coming is very much the duet record. And the harmony constant in all of these things is the thought of the future with you. Play red. He continues to play on and off again with Nesmith over the years. And they wind up doing a live album together from McCabe's Guitar Shop that's called Cosmic Partners. And it, again, it's just a duet between the two men. It's the songwriting and the songs that Nesmith brings to the recording are fantastic. But again, none of these songs are going to fly unless Rhodes is doing the incredible pedal steel stuff that he has going on through all this music. Highly recommend Cosmic Partners. I think it's it, it just really captures Nesmith live in that early '70s period, and, and again, the musicianship between the two men is extraordinary. And Nesmith, even as his career was having its sort of second renaissance or victory lap or whatever you want to call it, about five six years ago. He did a couple of years of touring with Mickey Dolan's doing good stuff from the Monkees catalog. And he did a what was called a redux of the First National Band. And he went out and played that early 70s music. And I managed to catch a few of these shows as he came through Chicago. And he had this wonderful story about Red Rhodes. Red had already passed away in the mid-90s at the age of 64. People who have been listening closely to the podcast uh, since the beginning 
We'll know that when it comes to Mike Nesmith, the monkeys, Red Roads, uh, Jim is far and away. The expert is compared to myself. I like the music I've heard. I've listened to the first national band catalog. I did really enjoy it, but I didn't really even know any of that stuff existed until Jim turned me on to it somewhere around 18 to 20 years ago. Uh, I did a little bit of research for Mr. Rhodes here and you know, I knew he was a session player in California. And so I got curious about what songs he may have done that wouldn't necessarily be in the country genre. Uh, if you're in a city like Nashville, there's a lot of competition to record pedal steel on things. But if you're in a less country music hotbed, such as L.A., uh, you're going to get more work, not only in country music, but just music in general, since there are going to be fewer people who are going to be as talented in this particular location. So I learned that he plays on songs such as Going Home by The Birds, Fire and Rain by James Taylor, Summer Breeze by Seals and Crofts. See the paper laying on the sidewalk, a little music from the house next door. So I walk on up to the doorstep, through the screen and across the floor Summer breeze makes me feel fine Blowing through the jasmine in my mind uh, As Jim mentioned, he does die in August of 1995. Uh, far too young. He could have continued to make some amazing music, but we're fortunate that we did get what we did get. So, Mr. Red Rhodes. Folks, these are in no particular rank or order aside from what Chris suggested to me uh, during pre-production. And I managed to jot down numbers next to the folks' names real quickly. But up next is a man who we've all heard probably more times than we realize. Probably don't know the guy's name or don't know much about him, but you've heard him everywhere you go in the world of classic country uh, this is one of those times where the hat of expertise falls squarely on Chris's head, and he's talking about the great Ralph Mooney. So first of all, I'm going to say that when it comes to personal preference, uh, I hands down would say that my favorite player on this list is definitely Moon. I think for me, a lot of that comes from the fact that he was associated with Waylon Jennings' band for so long. You know, I literally grew up listening to this guy play on everything. And, you know, as you mentioned, Jim, a lot of times we don't know these people's name. And that was certainly the case for me for the longest time uh, when it comes to Ralph. Eventually, you start learning a little bit about him and it becomes a fascinating tale. So he's born in September of 1928 in Dunklin, Oklahoma. Uh, he moves to California in 1940, and he learns to play guitar, fiddle, and mandolin. 
And then he hears Leon McAuliffe play steel guitar rag and teaches himself to play it on flat top guitar using a knife as a slide. Once he learns what the instrument is that McAuliffe is playing, he builds his own. Uh, Leo Fender will eventually study Moon's design later when he goes to build the Fender pedal steels. Howdy, Moon. Howdy. All right. Hey, Moon. Play Crazy Arms for me. Do do I have to? Just like you wrote it. Oh, okay. Uh, Okay, I'll try it and see how it comes out, okay? Although only a small part of the beginning of his career was comprised of actually being uh, Wynn Stewart's pedal steel player, that is how Mooney continued to refer to himself for most of the rest of his career. He would just refer to himself as Wynn Stewart's pedal steel player. Uh, I do want to give credit for that reference. Uh, It's a show I mention quite frequently uh, on this show. But if you go listen to the Cocaine and Rhinestones episode about Ralph Mooney, uh, there are some fascinating stories involving Mooney and Wynn Stewart. So go listen to that one after you're done listening to ours. You'll enjoy those stories as well. Uh, Wynn Stewart gets too caught up in drinking and partying to reliably further his own career. So while that's happening, uh, Mooney does a lot of sessions with folks like Wanda Jackson, Uh, Terry Fell, Skeets McDonald. Uh, In fact, he becomes the original pedal steel player for The Strangers, uh, Merle Haggard's band. He plays on their first five albums. Uh, this is Munya here on Swinging Doors and The Bottle Let Me Down. He actually writes what becomes one of the most important songs in country music history. Uh, the song is called Crazy Arms, and Ray Price is cutting the song. And the bass line that was typical in country music at the time, which was just a 2-4 walking bass line, it just isn't working. So Price has the idea to switch to a 4-4 shuffle, and that then instantly takes over the industry as the standard in, in the genre. And that's why I'm lonely all the time. So please take the treasure dreams I had for you. Uh, the song itself, Crazy Arms, it's covered by folks from Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, the Andrews Sisters, Graham Parsons, Patsy Cline, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Linda Ronstadt, and so many other folks.
you asked me to uh, by Waylon Jennings, where he also plays Dobro on that track as well. That's all that matters, and I'll do anything you ask me to. So while we're telling you about how great and how widely recorded Ralph Mooney is, uh, please hit us up on our email, sixstringhayride at yahoo.com. Six is a word, not a number. And on our Facebook page, Six String Hayride, we've already got some good pedal steel up there stuff. Uh, earlier today, uh, Chris's football team was not playing. Mine was losing, so we had a chance to get some stuff on the Facebook page. And you can always hit us up as well at patreon.com and then just search for Six String Hayride. Again, six is a word, not a number. Uh, We would welcome and have great thanks for any contributions that any listener wants to make to the program. Thanks very much, folks. So up next is a guy who played a lot in the backing band for Tennessee Ernie Ford, flashy, but solid, excellent musicianship. So Wesley Webb West, that's a lot of W's. I think this is definitely a guy who was glad he was not interviewed by Barbara Walters during her interviewing career. The W's would have been fast and furious all over the place, folks. Wesley Webb, Speedy West, is born in January of 1924. He leaves this earth in 2003. So by country music standards, living to 79 years old, impressive accomplishment speedy west is a pedal steel player and he's also a record producer he did a lot of uh, session work for capitol records he was in the backing band for tennessee ernie ford for a long time he did back up frank sinatra and bing crosby on various capitol recordings he is the first country steel guitarist to use the full pedal version that is kind of the common standard today and other Nashville players would start to pick up on that through the early 1950s.
Go listen to Bill Monroe. Listen to Maybell Carter as a guitar picker. Listen to Chet Atkins. Listen to Leon McAuliffe in the Bob Wills band. Listen to Bob Wills as a fiddle player. And then, you know, somebody like Speedy West on Pedal Steel. It, these are people who were just fast and furious, and you could see the smoke coming off their fingers. And, it, you know, for those folks who love music but really only associate that kind of thing with the rock and roll world, uh, do yourself a favor and jump into one of those rabbit holes that Chris is always talking about because just the flaming, magnificent virtuosity of some of these players from, you know, the 30s, 40s, 50s, where do you think the rock and roll kids got some of these ideas from? So, yes, as you mentioned, he was born in uh, January of 1924. He's actually born in Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Springfield, it's a hell of a town. The schoolyard's up and the shopping mall's down. The stray dogs go to the animal pound. Springfield, 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 New York, New York. New York is that way, man. Thanks, kid. Which, another place where you wouldn't necessarily consider it to be a hotbed of country music in terms of talent emerging, but certainly a place that was saturated in the country music culture. Hold on to your pitchforks, everybody. It's time again for... Starring in alphabetical order, Yodel and Zeke, Butterball Jackson, Reddit Boy and Yuma, Chorus Moselle, Big Shirtless Ron, Orville and Hurley, Gaffy May... Hip Diddler, Rooney, the Yahoo Recovering Alcoholic Jug Band, and tonight... Right now, friends and neighbors, it's a great pleasure to introduce the King of the Steel with the country style as one and only, Speedy Wayne! Speedy So that brings us to a fellow that, honestly, audience, I have never heard of this guy until Chris and I started working on this one. Uh, so I would like to very honestly and enthusiastically recommend this podcast for its educational value in the capable hands and research of my co-host Chris and his good buddy, Weldon really die and find out who this guy is myrick you know this actually brings up an interesting point which is 
you know, a lot of times it's possible to be a very knowledgeable fan of a genre of music, but not to have heard of a lot of the people who make that music, especially with country music where studio musicians were so prevalent that, you know, you would know that Jeannie C. Riley cut the album, but you wouldn't know who that was playing guitar. Uh, you would know, you know, the hit songs and the people who were singing them, but not necessarily the band that was making them. And Weldon Myrick is one of these guys. He's born on April 10th of 1938 in Jayton, Texas. Uh, he's around eight years old when he starts playing guitar. He actually has a brother who's 12 years older than he is who joins the Air Force. And his brother's already playing uh, guitar at this point. So his brother brings his equipment home to store it while he's in the military. And Weldon essentially just starts teaching himself to play. graduates high school in 1956 he moves to big spring texas uh, another town in west texas and he actually joins the local police force uh, he does start working with a well-known local musician uh, named ben hall who has a tv show and they wind up going to nashville to record a demo for ken nelson at capitol records and as a result of that trip and his desire to enter this industry uh, Myrick winds up moving to Nashville in 1963. Uh, he does become a member of the Nashville A-Team. course somebody like pete drake is the one that people tend to know more of but you know there's so many sessions and so much work that even the second and third call guys are picking up plenty of gigs and myrick is he's a talented enough guy to pretty continuously get a lot of those calls uh he additionally he does play dobro in addition to playing pedal steel Some other songs that he plays on, uh, Drift Away by Dobie Gray. Oh, give me the beat, boys, and free my soul. I want to get lost in your rock and roll. 
and the version of Wings of a Dove uh, from the Honky Tonk Angels record, which was Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, and Tammy Wynette. On the wings of a snow-white dove, he sends his pure, sweet love, a sign from above. So again, a pretty versatile player, not only playing on country sessions, but again, some rock and soul with Dobie Gray there, a versatile player and somebody who, you know, I understand why he's not so well known, but hopefully as enough time goes by and enough people start digging into some of these bands and musicians, hopefully he will become more well known. Chris, I now can attach the name to the music and to the songs, uh, especially something like Drift Away that I heard a ton on the radio when I was younger. Um, thanks. And Weldon, wherever you are, thank you very much for your music, sir. And that takes us to number seven, really one of the more legendary and well-known guys uh, Leon McAuliffe, who really made his name playing with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. Out, friends, here's Leon. Take it away, boys. Take it away. He's really the pioneering guy in that metal steel sound that you get in Western Swing. Leo Fender, who in the early 50s really breaks through with the Telecaster. And yeah, we're big fans of that one here. But Leo Fender is also the guy that's trying to develop 
the mechanics and sort of push the format of the multi-nut metal steel. And it, as I was saying in the intro, it becomes something where, you know, if it's basically the size of the dining room table and your arms can't even get halfway across the instrument, rein it back in. You're going in the wrong direction there. But Leo Fender in the early 50s gets to making a triple neck pedal steel. So you can just about get your arms to the other side. You know, three necks. That's quite a reach. And Fender has this idea to spread a couple of these instruments around to try to get publicity that way. And, you know, he figures that if you get the professional musicians themselves into the instrument, it becomes something much, much easier to sell to the public. Yeah, in the early 50s, Leo Fender gives a triple neck to Leon McAuliffe for his work with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys. But this is the fun part. He also gives one of these, it's called a Fender Stringmaster, and he gives it to the Farina brothers, Santo and Johnny. And they use that for what myself and I think a lot of other guitar fans think is one of the most glorious guitar instrumentals ever. Santo and Johnny, you know, their original recording of it is, it's just fantastic. It, it, to this day, it just blows my mind. I just love it. So Leon McAuliffe is from Texas, and he grows up in the 1930s. And when he turns 18, he had been playing with a local group called the Light Crust Doughboys. And he was just playing straight rhythm guitar and a little bit of steel. But yeah, when he's 18, 1935, he hooks up with Bob Wills in Tulsa, and he stays with Bob Wills for a long, long time. He is in on the action for composing and arranging San Antonio Rose. And fantastic guitar on there he's also uh, behind the genius amazing track steel guitar rag is somebody who deserves every bit of praise he gets the man's influence was huge every time bob wills on a record shouts out take it away leon I mean, we know who he's talking to uh, just an extraordinary talent 
and guy that really is at the heart of what makes Western swing such a fun and incredible style of music. Take me back, Tulsa, I'm too young to marry. Take me back, Tulsa, I'm too young to marry. few episodes since we've done a drink or food recipe so you know fall is in the air everybody's back to school let us wander the leaf covered glory that is the harvard campus and uh we're going all the way back to 1926 this is john wayne's film debut it is a silent movie called brown of harvard before you start cracking jokes Don Wayne plays a football player from Yale, so he's still tough, and he's still the opposition. But the Duke never lost his sense of humor. He went to Harvard. He, he was invited back to, to the Hasty Pudding Club. Has President Nixon ever sent you any suggestions for your movies? <laughs> no, they've all been successful so far. This is a drink that features Applejack and sparkling wine. And Chris is going to finish filling out that glass for us. Yeah, as Jim mentioned, here in the Northern Hemisphere, it is uh, getting a little cooler out. So this drink lines up fairly nicely for a nice crisp fall drink. For this one, you will need one and a half ounces of Applejack, a half ounce of dry vermouth, a half ounce of fresh lemon juice, a half ounce of simple syrup, and two ounces of sparkling wine. You'll shake the Applejack, vermouth, lemon juice, and simple syrup with ice. You'll strain that into a cocktail glass and top it with the sparkling wine. Enjoy. to remind you to email us at sixstringhayride at yahoo.com six is spelled out you can also search us uh, on facebook as six string hayride or what we'd really appreciate you doing is finding us on patreon under six string hayride as well well folks thanks again for joining your hosts chris wainscott and jim o'malley on the six string hayride classic country podcast we are here for all of your classic country rockabilly early rock and roll little gospel little blues a lot of excellent country music themed recipes and basically we are here to keep your musical circle rocking bopping and very much unbroken so thank you for sticking with us. We will see you down the road real soon. And again, whether it's in your home, in your community, wherever it is you do your thing, keep your circle unbroken. Stay well, stay safe, and we'll see you real soon. Oh, can the circle be unbroken by and by, Lord, by and by? There's a bitter home away. Lord in the sky
these days and it won't be long I'll rejoin them in a song I'm gonna join the family circle at the throne No, the circle won't be broken By and by, Lord, by and by Remember, the force will be with you, always